0: There are few situations that are as frustrating, embarrassing, discouraging as getting a phone call that says, hey, you wrote out this check, but when we went to cash it, it said you didn't have enough in the account to cover it. Sometimes this is for different reasons. Maybe you lost track of what was coming in and what was going out. It's happened. Maybe you didn't realize that another check that you wrote out a while ago went through at a time that you didn't expect it to, and you don't have enough in there to cash it. Maybe you anticipated getting paid more. And you spent the money anyway. Regardless, when it comes back and it says insufficient funds, that you're in the red, that there has been an overdraft, that coupled with the fact that now because of that mistake, sometimes the bank hits you with a penalty for it. And so not only are you in the red more than you thought, but now there's a penalty, and now you're even further in the red because of the overdraft. Now, this doesn't just happen with money, I find our overdrafts. It happens sometimes when we have misjudged our time, when we've misjudged our resources, when we have misjudged our abilities. Sometimes there's an overdraft. And let me give you an example with the holidays having just passed. Some of you got together for family gatherings or gatherings with friends, and you piled up your plate. And it turns out that your eyes were bigger than your stomach there wasn't enough room. Maybe if it wasn't that, maybe uh, you were moving and you misjudged the amount of stuff that you had and your truck was too small and so there wasn't enough room. You promised that you were going to be somewhere and you had to cancel out because your schedule was too booked. You promised that you were going to do something, there just wasn't enough time. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you've said, hey, I'll pray for you, and you meant to, you wanted to, but you didn't do it. So you said something with your mouth, and you were unable to follow through with it. In each case, whether we're well-intentioned or well-meaning, we were not able to follow through on the things that we promised. Now, what we find is this, is that no matter how successful or unsuccessful a man or a woman may be, made in the image of God, when we're operating on anything less than the power of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be overdraft. There's going to be overdraft. We're going to be making promises that we cannot possibly keep. And if you understand the idea of making commitments, be it financial, be it uh, with your treasures, uh, or your talent, or your time, if you understand that, having said, hey, I'm going to do this, I want to do this, and unable to follow through on it, then you'll understand the journey of a man that we'll take a look at today named Peter. Peter has a tendency to write checks with his mouth that the rest of his being is unable to cash, right? We've seen that repeatedly in Peter's story, um, that as we've looked at this, you kind of see the best of and the worst of Peter. You see the hits with Peter and you see the misses, And usually they follow each other like this, okay? Usually when Peter has a great hit, all right, and he gets a hit, usually right off of that it's it's followed by a major mess up. I was thinking of baseball. Usually when you see somebody like a Reggie Jackson or a Willie Stargell, and this is many, many years ago in baseball, you would see these guys and they would win the home run title, but in the same season they would also carry the record for strikeouts, They were swinging for the fence, and they either got a major hit or it became a major miss. And you see a series of this in the life of Peter prior to the book of Acts. Prior to the book of Acts. That is the key. And we'll talk about that as we get to the end of our message today. But what you see with Peter, for the most part, is a roller coaster. And maybe it's been a roller coaster like this for you. Consider. Jesus takes him up a mountain. To see Moses and Elijah. So you've got Moses and Elijah and Peter. And it's this great moment. And what does Peter do to ruin it? He talks. Alright, he opens up his mouth. He says, maybe it would be a good thing that I'm here so I could build three tents for you. Alright, and he kind of has a tendency to put his foot in his mouth. If you remember some of the other greatest hits and misses of Peter, he says, hey, you know, when Jesus asks who he is, uh, Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Peter says, okay, you get an A, come to the front of the class. And then right after that, when Jesus tells him he's going to the cross, he says, that's never going to happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So you see, wins, loses. Success, failure. Of course, there's the moment where Peter walks on the water, takes his eye off of Jesus, then he falls in the water. Then he's talking to Jesus and says, he thinks he's got it figured out more than the other disciples hey, how many times should I forgive a brother? Seven times, and Jesus says, you're off a little bit. It's 70 times 7, Peter. And so through Peter's story, as we've seen in the Gospels, and as we referenced John 13, where uh, Jesus went to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter was the one that said, you will never wash my feet. Well, then Jesus said, I have no part with you. Then Peter said, give me a bath. All right? And so it's like at that point, you see these hits and misses of Peter culminating in what we saw a couple of weeks ago, and he says, Jesus, if everybody else fails you, I will go with you even unto death. Even unto death. Even if everybody else bails on you, not me. I'm your man. And what happens is this, is that when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, he draws his sword, cuts off Malchus's ear, Jesus says, Son, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And then Jesus heals the priest. Peter is completely thrown off and he runs away. And again, as we look at this with Peter, sometimes we see ourselves because sometimes we're really getting it. Sometimes we're really understanding it and we're feel, really feeling good about our walk with Jesus. And then there are other times where we can feel like a complete failure. In the passage today, life for Peter is completely unraveling. And what I mean is this is that now, after he struck the soldier, Jesus healed him, he, like all the other disciples, fled. He fled. Why? Because his image of who Jesus is is shattered. It is thrown him off completely. Because it didn't necessarily work out the way that he intended. And if you had that happen in your own life, where things didn't necessarily... Happen the way that you intended. And so now it was harder for you to have faith. It was harder for you to trust God in that situation because things did not necessarily pan out or play out the way that you intended. Remember what we said a second ago. When man, made in the image of God, is operating in anything less than the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be overdraft. Basically, when you're having an identity crisis, you will always be in the red because you'll never be fulfilling the purpose that you've made for you. You're going to venture into other areas that God didn't call you into, and you're going to find yourself struggling. And that's what we're going to see with Peter today as we read this passage, and we're just going to go right through it. And as we go through it, what we're going to do is this. We're going to see how his conception of God, how his idea of God is thrown off, and because of that, there is a complete, total debacle with Peter, and he loses his identity. Some of you would say, well, Pastor John, I've found my identity in Christ, so I don't know that I need this message. Listen, you're living in the day and age of false news. I'm not talking about any of your favorite news channels. I'm talking about the lies that Satan is feeding into your head. He's always trying to get into your head. And so as we look at this today, let's take a look now verse 66 of chapter 14 it says now as peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw peter warming himself she looked at him and said you also were with jesus of nazareth but he denied it saying I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out of the porch and a rooster crowed. Now, here's why this is significant. Because Jesus told him, listen, before the rooster crows twice tonight, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus predicted that this was going to happen. And just as Jesus said it was going to happen, it's playing out. But it's playing out in a way that perhaps Peter would have never dreamt. It's not a soldier interrogating him. What we see instead is not a man being waterboarded, not a man being tortured for the truth, but it says here intentionally it was a servant girl that asked him. She said, oh, wait a minute. She goes, you were also with him. No, 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 Peter says. I neither know nor understand what you're saying. Verse. 69. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them, but he denied it again. Now you can kind of see this playing out. So first he's warming himself by the fire. The servant girl says, You are with Jesus of Nazareth. No, 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 not me. I don't know what you're saying. I don't even understand what you're talking about. And then you can kind of see her coming up. No, no, I do. I know you. You are with Jesus. You are with this Jesus guy, and he denies it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it, gives it away. Then he began, listen, not to just deny Jesus, but it says he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, And Peter Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Stop there. Servant girl calls him out on it twice. Then he's called out on it again the third time. Then he hears the rooster crowing. It wasn't uncommon for the rooster not to just crow once or twice. But these indicate that these were the first two times of the night that the rooster had crowed. And Peter, just as Jesus said, had denied that he even knew Jesus. Now, we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and they kind of give us a panoramic view of this moment. Matthew tells us in this moment that he remembered what was said, that Peter remembered what was said. Mark says he thought about what he did, but Luke gives us something else. Luke tells us something more interesting because Luke says it like this. Luke says that at that moment, somehow, no matter where he was, because Luke was more detailed, he was the physician, it tells us that wherever Peter was, that his eyes met Jesus. Can you imagine that? Wow. Okay, just as he said it was going to happen. All right? Now, however this has been orchestrated by God, all right, Matthew tells us that that Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Mark says he thought about what he did, but Luke said this. Their eyes met in that moment, and all of a sudden, Peter is crushed, and it says that he weeps bitterly, and that's going to springboard us into three things that we're going to talk about today, three important moments um, that we need to have in our lives to help us to find our true identity, all right? And the first of the three about our identity we'll see is this, it's that moment when you realize you're not who you think you are. That's an important moment in someone's life. All right? That moment when you find out that you're not who you think you are. How many of you have ever had those moments where it's like, "Well, I thought I was this. I thought I was talented. I thought I was good-looking. I thought I was this. I thought I was that." And we have this idea of ourselves and life has a way of kind of coming along and shooting that idea down sometimes. All right? And so that's when we come face to face with who we really are. And so, for me, the most compelling moment for me finding out not whom I really am, I'm five years old. Yeah, I was in an identity crisis at five years old in Long Island. In Babylon, Long Island, we've got a two-story house. I've got a wiffle bat, one of those fat bats, and my wiffle ball. All right? And I'm the next Reggie Jackson. All right? For those of you that are older, you'll understand who Reggie Jackson is. But here's what I would do. All right? I would throw the ball up. And with that wiffle bat, I would smack that ball repeatedly over the roof. I couldn't not hit it over the roof. All right? I was always hitting the ball over the roof, and mom was sitting there, because nobody saw me like my mother did. Mom was sitting there saying, That's it. That's my boy, the ball player, the future all star, the future Hall of Famer. I'm thinking who I am until I hit six years old, and it's T ball. And we find out that I'm pretty much uncoordinated completely. And I've got, and I guess I can do this with this, because this is what it looks like. It looks like a little tee, right? And so so you got the ball on the tee, and here I am, and boom! All right, and I'm hitting the tee. The tee's knocked over the ball. The only way that the ball's going onto the baseball field is because I'm hitting the tee, knocking it over, because I'm so uncoordinated. That should have been my first clue that I would never necessarily make it as a baseball star. But no, I went a little further into Little League. And when they're playing fast pitch now, what I found was this, is that I would be swinging the bat when the ball was already in the catcher's glove. Problem. There was just not the coordination. And who was I upset with? I was upset with Mom. Mom, what's going on? What's the truth here? I'm obviously not a ball player. came face-to-face with crisis. Life has a way of giving us reality checks. I don't know how it's happened for you. I just know how it's happened for me. And we see how it's happened for Peter. Peter's given a reality check. Peter made all these promises, all right, and now what's happened is when faced with the crisis, the rooster crows twice, Peter's denied Jesus three times, just like he said he would. And so now there's a crisis, and now he comes face to face with Jesus. We're going to see two things, two ways that God uses us Two things that God uses to show us sometimes that we're not who we think we are. But before we do that, we're going to take a little trip to Disney World. All right? Now, if we were to go two and a half hours north today instead of two hours west, we would find ourselves at the Magic Kingdom. But it's out of Disney that a story comes about a queen. And the queen, well, she has a spirit enslaved in a mirror. And every day she goes to that spirit in the mirror and says, and this is the right quotation of this, it's not mirror, mirror on the wall, it's magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? That's the right quote. Now, when the spirit in the mirror answers and says, my queen, you are the fairest in the land, it's a good day. for the queen. But one day, and you're familiar with the story, The queen says, magic mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Well, the spirit answers back, my queen, you are the fairest here, it's true. But Snow White, beyond the mountains, at the seven dwarves, is a thousand times more beautiful than you. Bad day for the queen. Truth bomb for the queen, right? Truth bomb for the queen. She goes into the mirror, and all of a sudden, she's not who she thinks she is. There's nothing like a mirror to reveal that, right? Sometimes when you're thinking, well, I look fabulous. And then you go in the mirror and you say, I don't look so good. You know, <laughs> you're sitting there and you're struggling. Because the mirror brings you face to face with who you are. So this is one way that God helps us to understand sometimes that we're not who we are. He uses different things to uh, different instruments. Perhaps it's a scale. And maybe you stepped on a scale thinking, okay. I've hit 205 for me. That's what I'm shooting for. I've hit 205. 212? What? Okay? And so the scale gives you the bitter truth and you come face-to-face with it, and now you're in crisis. You're not where you thought you were. Maybe it was a breakup. Maybe it was something that happened at work. And something has happened, and because you've been thrown into crisis, what you find is that you're not necessarily the person that you thought you were. Because crisis has a weird way of revealing that when you come face-to-face with a crisis. But guess what else has a way of doing that? When you come face-to-face with a crisis, is one way that God shows us that we're not who we think we are. But here's another way he does it, and that's when you come face-to-face with Christ. And for Peter, both have. He comes face-to-face with the crisis, and then he comes face-to-face with his Christ. That magic mirror on the wall moment for us. This is, a, this is such an important moment for the Christian. All right, This is such an important moment for somebody that is going through life, and they found their identity in different places, and now all of a sudden, something falls apart, and you're forced to look in the mirror and see what's really there. So our mirror-mirror-on-the-wall moment is crisis in Christ. And we see somebody else in Scripture that has a moment just like this. In some way, shape, or form, it's a man named Saul of Tarsus. You can keep your place in Mark, go over to Acts 9. And here you have Saul breathing threats against the church, threatening the church. He's wanting to incarcerate so that he can eliminate Christianity. He's on his way to Damascus, and verse 3 of chapter 9 reads like this. It says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Notice that he says, Lord. The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I think you know the rest of Saul, of Tarsus' story. He becomes Paul, the apostle. Exactly. He becomes Paul, the apostle. Didn't that happen to him now where he comes face-to-face with a crisis and face-to-face with his Christ? And all the things that he thought he knew about religion, all the things that he thought he knew about God, they come crashing in in that moment when he gets knocked off of his horse because he's confronted by Jesus. Listen, every time we open this book, we're confronted with truth, and that truth should throw us into crisis. It's what we call a crisis of belief. And in that moment, what we do tells the world what we believe about our God. Before you were a Christian, perhaps somebody told you about a verse, Romans 3.23, that said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you either decided, well, the Bible was right, or mankind was inherently good. No, mankind is inherently sinful. That's according to the truth of God's Word. Try to counter it, but countering it, well, you reveal what you believe about this God. So the more we're exposed to truth, the more we're we're standing in a mirror. And we're either seeing Christ or we're seeing us. And we're meant to see Christ. But at this moment, what we find is this. Is that he comes face to face with a crisis. For me, it happened in seminary. And I was thinking who I was. I thought I had it all figured out. I thought I was really getting the Christianity thing. But my wife was brought up in a different, with a different uh, denomination. And our devotional time became like battleground zero, and I was so right about this particular doctrine that I was learning in seminary. And so it was not a time of edification and building, it was a time of us battling that I could show her how right I was because of seminary. One night, I've got my Bible open, we're doing a Bible study, and the pastor of Calvary Fort Lauderdale at the time, is he's on the screen, and he is explaining this doctrine, and he's talking about it, and I find what he says is spot on. But here's what I'm doing. I'm looking in my Bible. I'm looking to see where he blew it. Now, wouldn't you know this, that as I'm watching this live online broadcast, he does one of these things. He looks right into the camera and says, by the way, if you're one of those folks out there right now looking in your Bible to see where I got it wrong, shame on you. And all God's people said, Ouch. Yes. Ouch. And so at that moment, I'm like, all right, Lord, if you don't want me to even be a pastor, I won't even do it, God. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm down on my face, and I'm saying, okay, God, what do you want next? I'm not who I thought I was. I don't get it as much as I thought I did. And that's the good news. And that's also the bad news. But there is good news with it. Because it's those moments where you're kind of deconstructed those are those important moments in the life of a Christian where we come to the point where we think, okay, we're not who we thought we were. God's usually saying it about that time, now you're exactly where I want you. This moment, Peter's idea of himself is shattered, and as it turns out, it's a necessary shattering for all that God wants to do in him and through him. Now, this works a couple of ways. Because sometimes what happens is this: when we say that, when we that moment comes along, when we find out that we're not who we think we are, sometimes we've elevated ourselves up to here, and we need to be broken down. Sometimes somebody is so broken they don't even feel worthy of God, and then you come face to face with the truth in another way, and you realize that you're not as bad as you say you as as you think you are. God says, "Listen, I found you worth dying for." So, the first moment that is crucial in our identity crisis is when we realize that we are not who we think we are. But the second moment is this. The second is when you realize that you're not who they say you are. You're not limited by that. You're a Galilean. You speak like this. How have people put a label on you? Because the world loves to do this, don't they? The world loves to to reduce you to what it can identify you with. Oh, you're from New York. You're from this part of the Midwest. You're from, uh, this place. And the world loves to put a label on us based off of our language, based off of our skin color. And the world likes to, to kind of label folks. And so the servant girl says, no, you're one of those guys with Jesus. You're, uh, you're a Galilean. You even speak like one because the world needs labels and they need categories to put us into. But here's the thing, you're not defined by what the world says. Now, if this is the case, it would have been a the undoing of a young shepherd whose story you know. But I just want to point out a couple of simple things in a story that most of you are familiar with. So leave Acts, we won't go there. Um, go over to the book of 1 Samuel. It's chapter 17, it's the story of David and Goliath. David doesn't wake up one day saying, you know what, I feel like killing a giant today. He simply goes out to bring his brothers who are in the field a care package. He goes out there to bring them a care package. He sees this Philistine taunting them, challenging them. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And I don't know why he picks on the circumcision fact, but who cares? All right, but that's... Just got me there, okay, for a second. All right, and so that's how he... He reduces Goliath, (laughs) okay? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And David's irate that this man is out there berating his God. But I want you to listen, because if it were for three different voices that come at David before the battle, then David would have turned away if he would have listened to what the world was saying. The first, it's it's his own brothers. They're soldiers on the battlefield, but nobody's getting near Goliath. It says here in chapter 17, Verse 20, it reads like this. It says, So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight, and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array. Verse 22, And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches will give him his daughter, and give his father's house, exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man that kills this Philistine, and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of Israel? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. But look at verse 28. The first opposition that David faces, In looking at Goliath, comes from his oldest brother. Verse 28 says, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Oh, I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Stop right there. So, the voice of the brother, supportive, unsupportive. All right, it's unsupportive. What is he saying? Oh, David, who, here you are. Here you go again. It's your pride. Where are those little sheep that you have? And what he's trying to do is he's trying to reduce David. He's trying to throw him back. Remember who you are. Remember your place. Don't look at this giant as anything other than what the soldiers have looked at him. All right? Instead, what we're saying is this, is that you're, you're nothing, David. Not only are you just a shepherd, You've only got a few sheep. Your efforts really don't matter, David. Now, at that moment, do you think it would be easy for David to listen to what the world is telling him rather than what God is telling him, and you think it's a, You're right. I'm just going to drop my package off, and it's time for me to go. But David doesn't stop there. All right? David, when his brazenness is heard of, he's brought before Saul, the king. Verse 31 says, Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. So now these are two two factors, two voices that are coming at him. The first is from his family. But nobody in here has ever been discouraged by the voice of anybody in their family. No, that doesn't happen. So let's just completely discount that. Let's forget about that one. But now he's got the most powerful man in the world. One of the most powerful men. Probably the king of the Philistines is more powerful, but obviously, based on Saul's response. But now he's got King Saul saying, David, you can't do this. This guy's been fighting since he was a youth. He's trained as a soldier. You, my friend. No, no, you're too, you're too young. You can't make a difference here. So now David can listen to the voice of the brothers which he doesn't. Good for you, David. But now he's heard the voice of the kin. And maybe at that point he's saying, "Okay, maybe it's time to to just okay, maybe I should give this up." No. David said to Saul, "Your servant used to keep his father's sheep and when a lion or bear came, and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Stop right there. So David, again, does not tuck tail and run. He's not listening necessarily to what the others are saying, okay? This giant has still been placed in great perspective because David's, David's view of God is immense. It's immense. And so he's not listening to what the world is saying. Now there's one more voice. So first you have that of the brothers. Then you have the voice of King Saul. But now the voice of the giant himself ringing out through the valley saying, and when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he disdained him. When the Philistine looked about, Saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Stop right there. Y'all know the rest of the story, right? doesn't quite go down as Goliath said it was going to go down. So David can listen to the voice of his family. David can listen to the voice of the king, a very powerful man. David can listen to the voice of the giant that's standing right in front of him, but David says it like this. He says to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Let me ask you something, church. Has the voice of the world gotten louder for you than the voice of your God throwing you into an identity crisis where here you are thinking you're less than what God made you to be. No longer a slave of fear, you are a child of God. Isn't that true? But it's a very important moment in somebody's life in their finding of their identity when you realize that the voice of the world is off. Now this week in the news, there are some folks that are going to be hit with a major identity crisis. Their names are Harry and Megan, right? I read this, and I found this pretty interesting. Because now that they've separated themselves from royalty, they're going to get pulled in different directions, you would think, right? Well, here's a letter that was written to them. Dear Dukes, this is, they were, Prince Harry basically, he's offered a job at Burger King. Dear Dukes, they took out this ad this week. Dear Dukes, if you're looking for a job, We have a new crown for you, so states an ad by Burger King, which was followed by a tweet. Harry, this royal family offers part-time positions. The company explained, We found out that the prince and the duchess decided to give up their roles in the royal family and will work to become financially independent, so we have a proposition for you. Do as thousands of people and take your first steps into the world of work with us. You know that the crown will suit you perfectly. Commentators responded that Burger King won the internet for the day. (laughs) Can you see that? I mean, can, can you even see it? Listen, the world has its own ideas, but it's one of the greatest lies of the enemy. To let others dictate your value your significance, your worth. We easily get confused and easily thrown into identity crisis. I wrote down a few things. One, you need to dress like this. Now, luckily, you know, when you guys come into this church, you see your stylish pastor. uh, Or not. (laughs) Not. Okay? The shoes. Yeah. Okay. You need to dress like this. You need to look like this. You need to talk like this. Or because you're from here, you are this. Because of your education level, you're that. Because of your record, you're this. Because of your diagnosis, because of your past, because of your failure, because of your bank account, because of your age, because of your disability, because of your addiction, We've been inundated, overwhelmed, and flooded by the world with its ideas of who we are or who we should be. And it gets very, very confusing, don't you find? And that's the problem. We've been thrown into an identity crisis. That's it for Peter. He's come face-to-face with a crisis. He's come face-to-face with Christ. And there's this moment of breaking. So there are two moments that we've looked at that are so important in realizing our true identity. One is when you're not who you think you are. And let's add to that. You're not who you think you are if it's not consistent with God's view of you. And two, you're not who they say you are if it's not consistent with God's word. You're not who they say you are if it's not Consistent with God's Word. So, why are we giving people that kind of power over us? Why are we giving people that kind of leeway? Why are we giving them that loud voice in our life if it's not consistent with God's Word? So, this is the third moment that's really important in finding our identity. And it sounds like this. And it's really simple, yet it's the single most important thing you can learn. And that is that you are who He says you are. You are who He says you are. Plain and simple. Game, set, match goes to God, your creator, the author of life, who created you in his image. But sometimes these moments of failure and falling, like Peter experiences, are necessary. He's got to let us, he's got to take the air out of who we are so that we can accept the truth of who we are, who he made us to be. See, the bitter and the weeping is not the end for Peter. Can you imagine how broken this man was, looking at the face of his beaten Christ, his arrested Christ, can you imagine what he's going through and the brokenness that comes with that? And that brokenness can either make him bitter or it can make him better. It can make him more dependent upon this God and press into him or he can go away from him. It's the voice of truth. Jesus is not done with Peter. And as long as they're within earshot of his word, Jesus is not done with you. He's not done with Peter. This is not the end of Peter's story. Last places we're going to look at, flip over to John 21. Peter, who had denied Jesus, and now, again, we're going forward into the story. We're going to be talking about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus within the next few weeks. But because none of the other Gospels quite cover it as well as this one does, we're going to go to John 21. Verse 15, and this is after Christ is resurrected, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Stop there for a second. Just note this. A lot of people focus on the word love in this for a second. I want to focus on something else real quick. His name was Simon, or was it Peter? We know him as Simon Peter. We know that at one point in the Gospel, Jesus says, when when Simon says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, and Jesus says, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He changes his name to Peter. But note here, he calls him Simon again. Why? Because there's been an identity crisis. Am I talking to Simon now, or am I talking to Peter? Let me know who I'm talking to. Because the question that Jesus asks is very telling. He says, do you love me more than these? Why that question? Because Simon, Peter, said this. He said, even if all of these fail you, I won't. Do you love me more than these? Are we what we say, Peter, or are we what we do? Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying what death he would glorify God. Historically, we understand that Peter was crucified upside down. Some traditions even say that his wife was right next to him, crucified upside down also here's the point. What brings a man from up and down and up and down to the man that you see in the book of Acts? And the man that you see in the book of Acts, well, the first places that we see Peter in the book of Acts, what is he doing? What you see is a fisherman, but the fisherman is quoting Scripture. You never saw that in the Gospels, did you? I don't remember seeing Peter quoting a lot of Scripture in the Gospels, but now in the book of Acts, Here he is, he's quoting scripture in the Gospels. He's healing people in the Gospels. He's preaching to multitudes in the Gospels. He's getting arrested for his faith in the Gospels. And this is the last thing that I want to read to you. It's in Acts 4, after he had been arrested, after he and John had been beaten, he's brought before the leaders Verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Listen to this, because this is the freedom that comes with knowing Jesus. There's nothing that they can do to him, and they know it. They're standing before us with the power of God. Verse 18 says, So they called them and commanded them to not speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. I think they found their identity. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Stop right there. What happened to Peter? The Holy Spirit happened to Peter. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it helps make a connection that's off unless the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Our head and our heart are not connected unless God comes in. Unless the Holy Spirit comes in and helps us make that connection between the head and the heart, then we're either going to get lost in our thoughts or lost in our feelings. One of the two. But when the Holy Spirit comes into the life, what he does is he brings the whole thing together. And what you see is freedom. And a man, now Peter, that is doing exactly what he was put on this planet to do. Now, it's not that we see Peter as being without failures. He's got a couple of ups and downs from there. But he's certainly not defined, as we saw him in the Gospels, now that the Holy Spirit is indwelling him. And what I thought of was this. is how sometimes we let everything else that's happened, we let the crisis, we let our past, we let our self-perception, our self-labeling, we let all these things, Uh, become louder than God's voice, and it throws us into identity crisis, and we forget who we are. Where I wanted to close you today was another two-and-a-half-hour drive to Disney, if you would just go with me for a second. All right? The story of the Lion King centers around Simba. Simba is like every other young cub, Christian, cub, Christian, cub, Simba's like every other young cub who has a tendency to wander into areas that he's not supposed to. That's why it was kind of confusing to get it. Uh, like every Christian, like every cub that has a tendency to wander into areas that he's not supposed to, but he kind of feels invincible. After all, he is Mufasa's son. One day he's tempted and led away into dangerous territory. As he again gets himself into trouble, this time the consequences are horrific and the price is high as Mufasa, his dad, in saving him, gives up his own life. From that moment, Simba, believing his father's death is his fault, runs away. He meets Pumbaa and Timon. They're a meerkat and a warthog. He goes vegetarian. Really forgets his identity. Okay, he's a lion, all right. But he's 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 eating as a vegetarian now. He's hanging with a meerkat. He's hanging with a warthog, and they've developed this philosophy on life. And you know it better than I. It's called Hakuna Matata. All right, that means no worries for the rest of our days. We're not going to worry about anything until he gets news that things are not good back home, and what they need is a lion. Oh, but it can't be me. It can't be me. I'm I'm not the I'm not that lion. I'm not the right one for the job. And now as he's downcast, and he's moping about the state of his people, an elderly sage, old Rafiki the monkey, and you remember Rafiki, Rafiki's the one that holds him up the circle of life, he holds him up, so Rafiki is holding him up like this, and now, as an older monkey, here he is, and he meets Simba, and he says something interesting, he says, your father lives. Simba's like, I've got some bad news for you. You knew my father while my father died. He goes, no, your father lives. Follow me, Simba. Follow me. And he takes him to the water. And when he takes him to the water, he says, look down there. Look in the water. And Simba looks in the water, and all he sees is himself. No, no, no. Look again. Look again. And now, when he looks, he sees his father. Fiki says he lives in you. Then he hears his dad's voice. Simba, you have forgotten me. You've forgotten who you are, and so have also forgotten me. You are more than what you've become. Remember who you are. You are my son. Gang, remember who you are. You are children of the king, made so at the great price of his son. And so when you start hearing that voice in your head, you start preaching the gospel to that voice in your head. When the world starts telling you who you are, you tell them who the Bible says you are. And if you forget, sing a song. That's exactly what we're going to do right now. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to close our service with a song today. Father in heaven, we just love you. And we thank you. And we just ask right now, um, if Billy or Gooch is there, if you guys could pull up the lyrics over on the uh, Easy Worship. Father, we just thank you. And uh, as we close in the song today, we pray that we loudly proclaim this truth. That we are reminded, God, of the price that has been paid for us. Thank you for the price you paid. In Jesus' name say